So would you grab your Bibles and open to Psalm 77? Psalm 77. We're in this series called Developing a Rule of Life. It will actually end next week with Easter week as we uh, journey through this, uh, but only the series itself is going to end. Uh, hopefully you have grabbed the, one of the practice guides out in the lobby. If you haven't, let me encourage you to grab one of those on your way out today, uh, or also you can get that online, a PDF copy of that online. Uh, the, the rule of life process is one that uh, doesn't just take seven weeks of preaching and then you're good. Um, there's a lot of uh, development that's going to go into that, and so my encouragement for you at the very back of that booklet, there's a four-page appendix that walks you through at, at a very high level what it looks like to develop a rule of life. And so I want to encourage you to really spend some time in that, uh, not just this week and next week, uh, but in the weeks and months to come. I, I think as we step into this practice to really develop a rule of life, um, it, it will bear much fruit in us, as Jesus said would happen in John chapter 15, that as we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. A lot of the rule of life practice is all about making space. It's all about ha having room for Jesus. And we've talked a lot about room from a time perspective over the last couple weeks, but there's also room from an emotional and spiritual perspective. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. And so I'm going to ask Bill to come. He's going to read for us two different passages. First, Psalm 77, what you're in right now. And then some words of Jesus, some of the forgotten portion of Palm Sunday from Luke chapter 19, and you'll hear uh, the heart of Jesus as he came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. <clears throat> from Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. Hmm. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? 
You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, <laughs> yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. From Luke chapter 19. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you meet us in these words that are truth? Would you help us to hear your message for us this morning. And so God, open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our spirits. God, would you guard my words that they would come from your spirit alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain, that they would penetrate our hearts, and that they would find fertile soil in which they can grow up and bear fruit. And so God, May your word do what you've intended for it to do, to transform us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Palm Sunday, um, if I was going to take a survey, I think what immediately would come out of us as we think about Palm Sunday is the story that Pastor Tim referenced earlier, the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the hosannas, the, uh, the cloaks on the ground, the palm branches, and that's appropriate. That absolutely was a part of Palm Sunday. But it's interesting that the scriptures have a, a, much, more, um, a, a much richer view of Palm Sunday. It wasn't just that entrance that happened on Palm Sunday. It was also uh, Jesus going into the temple and throwing people out of the temple, turning over the tables with an expression of uh, a prophetic expression of the uh, uselessness of the system that had been uh, developed. And in between those two things, Jesus lamented. He wept over Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, we tend to think of as a time of rejoicing, but for Jesus, 
Palm Sunday was a time of lament. And there was a lament that was deep within him. It wasn't just a a surface-level sadness. There was a a deep lament in Jesus because Israel was to be a, a, a light to the nations. Israel was supposed to have carried the light of God out to the world so that that plan of redemption could be enacted. But Israel, as we do, failed again and again and again. And so the deep lament in the heart of Jesus was that Israel had failed their God. That God had done all of these incredible things for Israel. And Israel, with hard hearts, had walked the other way. Now, it's it's fascinating that Jesus laments that because uh, if you're familiar with the flow of the story, if you're familiar with where this week is going, Jesus is going into Jerusalem in order to bear the sins of all the people, in order to bear the sins of Israel and the rebellion of Israel so that redemption could happen. So the journey to the cross is right in front of Jesus. He, He knows it at this point. It's very clear where he's going. He's told his disciples again and again what's going to happen as they go to Jerusalem. Like Jesus is incredibly aware of it. And yet, even though he knows that a more perfect answer is coming, that actually Israel's obedience would have only been partial to what was needed, that, that what he was about to do was going to fix it for good, he still wept. He still lamented. And the question, I think, a fair question is why? Like he knows what's coming. And he's not crying for him. He's not, it doesn't seem at this moment uh, afraid of the weight of sin or the pain that's coming or uh, the difficulty of the week. That will come. But he's lamenting the disobedience of Israel, the brokenness of Israel. John chapter 11 has another story that's kind of like this. Uh, Jesus goes to his friend Lazarus' house, and Lazarus has just died. You're probably familiar with that story. And the shortest verse in the Bible, the one that you probably memorized when you were little, so you get the little points for it, right? Like, I know a verse, Jesus wept, right? You remember that one? Uh, Jesus wept right there in the middle of John chapter 11. Uh, It's a fascinating placement of that single little verse because Jesus has already, at the beginning of John 11, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm glad we didn't get there before Lazarus died because I'm going to go there uh, effectively, paraphrasing, in order to raise him from the dead. Like, he knows what's coming. And yet he gets to the tomb, and he still weeps. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he still weeps. Why? What what possible purpose could lament serve when we know that there's hope on the other side? That's the heart I wanna, of what I want to dive into today. And I want to dive into that using Psalm 77 because uh, the psalmist, in a beautiful way, lays out the flow of lament for us. So I want to look at three different aspects. I want to look first about lament as a choice. It's, J- Jesus chose to lament, and we are invited to choose lament. Then lament as formation. The fact that in a, in a healthy uh, Christ-like way, lament forms us, just as it did Jesus. And then finally, lament as a doorway, where grief and pain lead us, and and, and the invitation that the difficulties, the brokenness of life has for us. So lament as a choice, lament as formation, and lament as doorway. 
So if you're in Psalm 77, I'm not going to read all of this again to you. Bill did that so well. I I just want to draw your attention to these first couple verses. There's actually uh, three key verses in here. Those are the three we're going to kind of dwell on as we work our way through. So the psalmist begins by saying, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. And here's the key thing I want you to see. My soul refuses to be comforted. My soul refuses to be comforted. The psalmist is saying to us, I have a choice and I'm refusing comfort. I'm choosing lament. I'm choosing the the brokenness and the weariness. I'm choosing the weight that I feel. And I'm choosing that rather than allowing my soul to be comforted. There are uh, about 40% of the psalms are categorized as psalms of lament. So there's lots of choices for uh, psalms to preach from when you're looking at the idea of lament. There's so much within the scriptures about lament. I love Psalm 77 because we have no idea what's going on with the psalmist. You you don't have any clue what's happening here. He's expressing this lament. He's expressing that his soul refuses to be comforted, but he's not telling us why. In the other psalms, you might hear, uh, my enemies are chasing after me, or I feel the weight of my sin, or I recognize how much I've been disobedient to God, or I'm dealing with the, the, my own sickness and death, impending death. I'm uh, dealing with the death of people around me. Like n- None of that's present here. All you have in Psalm 77 is the psalmist saying, my soul refuses to be comforted. And so I think we're left with the question, Why? In legal terms, uh, there's actually a lawyer in the house who knows this way more than me, but I'm not going to give him a microphone for today, at least. Um, th- there, there's this thing called proximate cause. And uh, now I'm going I'm to define that in very layman's terms, and he'll correct me afterwards, I'm sure. But uh, proximate cause, to the way I understand it, is uh, when there is a, there's enough evidence that something has a causation relationship to this problem that you can, you can draw the line. You, you can show that these things are uh, the reason why this other thing happened. It's not foolproof, but it's, it's pretty clear. There's a lot of evidence. So uh, let me give you a, an example of proximate cause. Proximate cause is uh, we're, we have a world, we talked about a couple weeks ago, that's addicted to technology. Well, in, in 2007, the iPhone came out. And when the iPhone came out in 2007, our addiction, our relationship to technology changed dramatically. So over the course of the last 15 years, uh, we have interacted very differently because we carry like literally the entire world in our pocket, right? Like you can like, you can answer every question immediately. Um, All of the apps and social media things that you do, they're all designed to monopolize your time and draw you in. And that's all through the medium of this, this little phone that so many of us carry. So the proximate cause to our technological addiction is the release of the iPhone, the presence of the iPhone. But here's the fascinating thing. There are lots of people who carry around iPhones who are not addicted to them. How does that happen? <laughs> Some of you are saying, I don't know any. There are, trust me, there are a few. There are, there are a few people like that. <laughs> like, well, why is it that some people get sucked into that addiction and some people don't? What well, could it be that the proximate cause is just at the surface but there's an ultimate cause underneath that proximate cause that is something like this. If I am feeling deeply the hole that's in my heart, the brokenness of my life, 
and I'm looking for a way to self-medicate, to feel better in the moment, even if I know that it's not gonna last. Something like the iPhone is a perfect solution. Like I can just scroll through social media and look at other people's lives so I don't have to think about my own. I can play a game so that my mind can be transported somewhere else and I don't have to think about my own. I can watch the news or read the news and I can think about all the big problems in the world and I don't have to think about my own life. The ultimate cause, I would argue, goes all the way back to the, the brokenness of man. In fact, I would say when you go back to Psalm 77 that my soul refusing to be comforted, the dislocation of my soul, is actually a result of Genesis chapter 3. The, the fact that we are misaligned with our creator, the fact that we have been created perfect and yet are now broken, that our lives, our, our hearts, our souls remember what we should be and we're not, that becomes the deep underlying cause. And so I think Psalm 77 isn't telling us about the proximate causes. There could be all kinds of reasons why the psalmist is, is lamenting. But it's not really the point. Because the point is underneath all of those causes, whether it's sickness or whether it's death or whether it's enemy oppression or whether it's the world around him, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is at the surface because what's underneath the surface is the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of this specific person, the psalmist, as he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. And here's what I want you to hear. It's actually right and helpful that we sit in that now and then. It's appropriate for us to feel the fact that the world is broken. It's appropriate for us to, with intentionality, I, I would argue as a part of our rule of life, set aside time where we just think about the fact that things are not as they should be. That idea of brokenness and mourning brokenness creates space in the same way blocking a couple hours out of your schedule creates time. Sociologists tell us that if we don't mourn our losses, if we don't mourn the things that are broken around us, whether those be uh, the death of loved ones, whether that be sickness in our own lives or the lives of the people that we love, whether that be as simple as uh, lost opportunities or seasons that end before we move on to a new season. If we don't mourn those things, what happens is the energy that we have to give starts to shrink over a period of time because our energy is all bound up in the stuff that we haven't created closure in. So if I haven't mourned the things that I need to mourn, if I haven't lamented the things that need to be lamented in my life, I'm not able to create space, emotional heart space, to move into the new things that are coming. St. Augustine uh, said it this way. I, I like the way he put it uh, thousands of years ago. He, he said this, It's better, though, that the human heart should feel grief and be cured of it than by not feeling any grief to become inhuman. See, for so many of us, we live in a world where uh, we, we know that Jesus ultimately rules, that, that all things are going to be made right. It's all going to be good. And so we, we want to live this victorious life, and in the midst of the victorious life, we feel like it's almost, uh, it's almost in opposition to Jesus and the goodness of Jesus to mourn. But Augustine said so clearly and so rightly, that's part of what it means to be human. And so for us not to engage grief 
actually starts to shut off some of the things that make us uniquely human, created by God to feel, which is why I believe 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. The Psalms reminding us that it's appropriate for us to lament, to feel the weight of these things. But human nature is that we will avoid it in any way that we can. One of my very favorite um, uh, experiments that happened, uh, this happened several years ago in the University of Virginia at Charlottesville, they did this fascinating experiment where they took hundreds of volunteers and one at a time, they put them in a low stimulus room. So it was like a, a room that had like beige walls, nothing on the walls, one door in, one door out, and it had a chair, and then it had a little table with a machine on it. And they were told as they went in that that machine, if they touch the top of it, will administer to them a painful electric shock. It will not kill them, but it will, be a, it will shock them very painfully. And they're to go into the room for 15 minutes. So what do you think happened? Like, this is humanity, right? Like, people would go into the room. Uh, so th- there's, there was a great gender distinction, which is not a big surprise to anybody. So um, of the women who went in, 25% of women who went in there, at some point in the 15 minutes, went over and administered their own electric shock to themselves. They shocked them. So one out of every four women shocked themselves. 67% of men, right? <laughs> Who's surprised by that, right? 67% of men could not sit in a room for 15 minutes. Our brains are incredibly built, incredibly designed. Like we can think back for dozens of years, we can think forward for dozens of years, we can imagine things that aren't, we can start to dream up things. 15 minutes is not that long to be alone with your brain, it's not that big of a deal. Seven out of 10 men said, I would rather administer a painful electric shock to myself than think for 15 minutes. This is the world we live in. And that's why it's hard for us to lament. Because when we stop and feel, what we immediately want to do is get out of that feeling. Try to get somewhere else, to do something else. Soong Chang Ra wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. It's an excellent book on lament. And he, he says this, I think it's very convicting to who we are as a church. He says, the evangelical culture moves too quickly to praise from lament. We do not hear from all of the voices in the North American evangelical context. Instead, we opt for quick and easy answers to complex issues. We want to move on to the happier message of success and triumph and cover up the message of those who suffer. It's so easy for us to want to move to the next thing. The discipline of lament as part of a rule of life is to just be willing to sit in it and to recognize the world really is broken. And I don't have to go fix it. In fact, I can't. So many of the things that we lament, we can't fix. And the answers to the problems that we have for so many of them are eternal answers, not temporary answers. So rather than avoid it, rather than pretend it doesn't exist, rather than to quickly move on to the victory, It's appropriate, necessary even, for us to sit in it. Which is, I think, part of the reason why, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, he lamented. There there was a need to mourn all that had happened with Israel. Before he could move into the redemption act, there was a need to sit and mourn. 
And I think that is true for us as well. And so the psalmist goes on to uh, describe this lamenting process, and uh, the, the descriptions, I'll let you read them on your own through verse 9, are all of these uh, descriptors of, of what lament looks like for him. And I, I think as he does, what I, I want you to hear is he didn't rush through it. There was a, a process by which he just was willing to sit in it, to, to recognize things were broken. Whatever the, the proximate cause was, the ultimate cause was the world was broken. He was broken, and he sat in that. But then verse 10 says this, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. That word that starts the sentence then is a pretty significant word in uh, this, this transition. So see, what's happening here is the, uh, the psalmist, in the midst of lament, is shifting his gaze, not away from the brokenness, but up towards God in the midst of brokenness to say, and when I think about all of the broken things, I also remember that you have always been faithful in the midst of all of those broken things. So what starts to happen is there's a robust formation that starts to happen in the psalmist because he's not just choosing to sit in sadness and brokenness, but he's choosing to hold together that sadness with the the faithfulness and the promises of God. And when those two things together happen, we begin to have a a fuller view of who God is and a fuller view of who we are. There's uh, a great book on lament called uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by a guy named Mark Vrogop, and uh, he, he says this, lament invites God's people on a journey as they turn to God. They lay out their complaints. They ask for his help. They choose to trust. Embracing the ongoing, often daily process of lament requires that we walk by faith. Lament is more than something that comes out of you. It is part of the process happening in you. What he's getting at here is that as we sit in our lament and we look at the faithfulness of God, what begins to happen is a formation starts to happen in us that can be resilient, that can, uh, ca- that can uh, receive the suffering and brokenness of the world in a way that builds us up. You see Paul saying this in Romans chapter 5. You see James saying this in James chapter 1, that, uh, that suffering produces something in us. That the the brokenness of the world strengthens us and ultimately makes us people who have robust faith, that have a a, a deep, strong spirit in Christ. These two things held together create something in us. Mark Sayers, uh, who is an Australian pastor and cultural thinker, uh, makes the statement over and over again that crisis precedes renewal. That... um, that, that all moves of God, when you look historically all the way back to the first century and onward, when God does remarkable things, they almost always come out of crisis, either personal crisis or societal crisis. Crisis is always the gateway into renewal. But see, here's the thing. We think about renewal, revival, as something that just like breaks out in the moment. Like, like some of you are like, I'm just praying this morning that God just you know, brings revival right here. And there are times that God does that. But those are, those are the rarity. Um, the, the typical way renewal happens is not in a moment in time, but over a process, over a period of time. As, as we lament, as we experience crisis, God brings us out of that crisis in a way that renews us. It's the way that I've been praying over the last couple of years as we've journeyed through the pandemic and as we've come to the other side 
of all kinds of things only to enter into a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Is anybody uh, kind of aware of that? It's like, man, once one bad news story is out, then there's another bad news story, and it's like, man, this is, this is a rough season right now, right? But crisis precedes renewal. And so the way that I've been praying and the way that I've tried to invite you to pray is that we would pray into the things that God does in the midst of that. And it's as we sit and lament that we begin to, to, to come out of it with a recognition of who God is, that our eyes start to move up and we can begin to say, but he's been faithful. I, I know he's been faithful. I've seen him do it over and over and over again. And so Luke 19 becomes the premier example of this. Jesus lamenting what has been thousands of years of failed history of Israel, as he begins to move toward the cross, he looks toward God and he, he just recognizes, like, you've always been faithful. And so uh, even though this looks really, really broken, even though I feel the weight of it, I'm gonna continue to faithfully pursue after you. And the, the greatest renewal in history comes on the other side of that week that begins with lament, right? So you start with Jesus lamenting Israel, and that week ends with Jesus dying on our behalf. Um, It's fascinating, uh, we don't have time to dig into this this morning, but it's fascinating that Jesus on the cross references Psalm 22, another psalm of lament. And uh, as he meditates on Psalm 22, worth your time to read this week as you uh, go through Holy Week, as, as he laments in Psalm 22, there's a, an ending that brings hope that, that God in the midst of crisis will bring renewal. And that's what Jesus seemed to be meditating on as he hung on the cross, that in the midst of the brokenness, God was renewing. So lament was not just formational, but it, it becomes a doorway into something. And that's the final verse that I uh, want you to look at. So if you go down to verse 18, sorry, verse 19, There's this fascinating statement that the psalmist makes. He says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Uh, So so what he's saying is that God is still providing a way in the midst of all of this. So there's this process of lament, this longing uh, for God to do something, but there's also a way that's out in front of him. Uh, Glenn Packham, uh, when he talks about lament, he talks about lament as a, a, a temporary station. So look, look at the way he says it. Lament is not our final prayer. It's a prayer in the meantime. I love that. The, the lament prayers are prayers in the meantime. Most of the lament psalms end with a vow to praise, a promise to return thanksgiving to God for his deliverance. The psalmist comes to the end and he says, your ways were through the waters. Now, he's referencing quite clearly the Red Sea crossing, what we looked at a couple weeks ago. So certainly that's a surface reference. But there's another thing that's going on here. In Hebrew thinking, the sea was a place of chaos. The sea was a place of uh, evil, and it was to be feared because of the chaos of the sea. And what the psalmist says is, your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. It was actually through the chaos, through the brokenness, through the difficulty, through the weight, through the the, the lament that you brought hope. Your pathway to hope is actually through the chaos, not around the chaos. What we see throughout the scriptures is that God does not avoid the brokenness of the world. He charges straight through the middle of it. 
And the bottom line of the, the sacrifice of Jesus is that Jesus chose to face sin and death head on for us. Not working his way around, but literally going through the sea. And the psalmist says rightly, your footprints were unseen. There seemed to be no path. I didn't know how you were going to get there. There was, there was no good way to go. And yet, you went straight through. Lament for us is a process by which we can begin to settle into the transformational work of God, the goodness of God. But it doesn't happen by ignoring the challenges. It doesn't happen by pretending that the crises around us don't, don't, aren't happening. It, it's not, uh, we don't have to as people just immediately put on a smile and a chipper attitude and pretend like everything's good. It's actually quite appropriate for us to feel the weight of the broken world around us. As part of a rule of life, on a regular basis, my recommendation would be at the bare minimum, once a month, you set aside some time to just go back through your journals, to look at things that have happened, and appropriately lament, appropriately mourn, to just recognize. Like, there are seasons where it, it's, it's not even bad. Like, uh, we just had our second child go off to college this year, and um, sending a kid to college in the middle of a pandemic is just weird. Like, the whole process has been weird. His his graduation was weird. The whole, the whole thing's been weird. And so it's, it's appropriate to just say, huh, that really stinks. That was not the way I thought it was going to go. Like, the, the way this is right now is not the way that I thought it was going to be. The, the way that this feels for us as, as a family right now is just not the way that I thought it was going to be. And you, just, and you just feel that. I don't have to solve it. But if I don't mourn it, if I don't lament it, I will never get to the place where I have the emotional, spiritual bandwidth to be able to engage what's next. And so for us as people to not back away from lament and grief and mourning, but to recognize it's a regular part of life, that Jesus himself cried at the tomb of Lazarus right before he rose him from the dead. The fact that we have hope on the other end doesn't mean that we don't lament it means that we lament with hope. And so I want to encourage you to, as we go into this holy week, to feel the weight of sin. As we come into Good Friday, it's, as Keeley said, it's, it's a weighty time. But it's, it's, it's the, the amount of weight that we feel that gives us the springboard into the life of the resurrection. And so those, those things work in relationship to one another. As we mourn, we also celebrate. And so for this morning, uh, for some of you, it's a new concept. It's a whole way of thinking that's different than the way that you perceive uh, your Christian journey to be. And so I just want to give you permission. For some of you, it's just a matter of saying, um, wow, I didn't even know I was supposed to do that. I didn't know that. I thought I was supposed to uh, pretend like everything's okay. You're not. You're supposed to recognize that it's, it's broken. And so for some of you, there's, there's mourning that needs to happen, maybe even this morning, as we uh, close our gathering with uh, some statements of truth, some songs that will uh, hopefully speak into our heart. Um, maybe it's time for you to respond. And so maybe that is simply uh, coming, if you come to this side of an altar, it's just a space for you to be with God, to just come and, and to be there. 
Maybe you just need a good, like, a little bit of time before God with a little bit of wait, and that's okay. Or maybe you want to come to this side of the altar over here. We would love to gather with you to anoint you for healing, to, to pray with you, to cry with you as you mourn. That's totally appropriate. And appropriate for us to celebrate because we are all in different parts of the journey at this moment. And so it's, it's totally fine, all of those things. And it may be that you just need to kind of sit here for a minute. And as we sing and respond, you need to look at what it looks like for you to enter into the fullness of that this week. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and they're going to lead us. And I just want to take a moment of silence to let that word settle into us. And then I want to pray over us. And then as you're ready to respond, I'm going to invite you to do that however the Lord leads you. So would you just settle your hearts? And in the silence, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and help us to hear your voice? So Holy Spirit, we ask you to continue to speak your truth into our heart. For some of us, there are things that are long past that we've just failed to mourn. So God, would you give us the grace to over the next days and weeks and months to come back to those things, to feel them and to be able to uh, see the hope that you have given to us in the midst of them. I thank you for the testimony of those, even somebody I talked to this week, who um, is, is sensing you transforming them through the lament, through the mourning. God, do you do that by your spirit? We don't understand it all, but we're thankful for the fact that you do. And so God, for those that are here who are dealing with what has happened or what is happening, or the fear of what might. God, would you give us the grace to lament appropriately as those with hope, knowing that on the other side, you are ultimately victorious. And so God, as we respond, would you meet us? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.